Between 1835 and 1885, the city of Naples, Italy, was stricken by seven epidemics of cholera. It took 42,000 lives and left Naples with a new label, the Living Cemetery. The cholera epidemic changed the way people lived and ultimately, in its wake, left us with a food we can't live without. With Naples, we get pizza. What you're about to hear has never been heard before. Welcome to the 23rd episode of Tracing the Path with Dan R. Morris. Our story begins in 1540 with the explorer Hernán Cortés. You may remember him as the Spanish explorer who overthrew the Aztec Empire and started the Spanish colonization of the Americas. But you may not know that he's also the guy credited for introducing tomatoes to Europe. Though Europe wasn't very accepting of foods from abroad. Potatoes, tomatoes, and eggplant were all imported, but without real knowledge of how to prepare them, it took a couple hundred years to become commonplace. Tomatoes were first dubbed the devil's fruit for their bright red color. In fact, they were originally thought to be poisonous. The rich who dined on lead plates, seemed to fall ill when eating tomatoes. But they blamed the tomatoes, not the combination of lead and acidity. It wasn't long before tomatoes were considered a peasant food, as the lower class lived off wood plates and never fell ill. The 18th century began the tomatoes' jump into the Italian diet. Naples was the first to integrate tomatoes, but they had a secret weapon. Their soil was more suited to tomato production than most other places on earth. Their soil had been mixed time and time again with the lush ash from Mount Vesuvius eruptions. The mineral content of the soil was perfect for tomatoes. Tomato sauce entered the Italian kitchen early, as referenced in the 1790 cookbook L'Opicio Moderno by Chef Lombardi. It suggested making the sauce for merchants, who were going to be taking long expeditions at sea. Chef Lombardi named his tomato sauce a name that meant seafaring. You know it well, marinara. It wasn't long before tomatoes and marinara were used as toppings on their traditional flatbreads. In 1807, there were 54 pizzerias in Naples who turned this ancient flatbread practice into a staple food. Naples pizzerias became known throughout Italy and attracted the curious. Alexander Dumas visited Naples several times, and in 1841 penned his travel stories in a book, Le Coricolo. He encapsulated his interest in pizza like this. Pizza is a kind of talmus. It is round in shape and is kneaded from the same dough as bread. It comes in different widths depending on the price. At two farthing, pizza is enough for a man. At two penny, Pizza should fill a family. At first glance, pizza seems like a simple dish. Pizza with oil, with bacon, with lard, with cheese, with tomatoes, with sardines. It is a gastronomic thermometer of the market, increasing or decreasing with the price of the toppings and availability during the year. Dumas was not well known outside Italy in 1841. But all that changed in 1844 when he would publish the Count of Monte Cristo, and the Three Musketeers. 
By 1844, travel to Naples had begun to slow, as the first round of cholera devastated the city. Naples had been the largest city in its region, perhaps the largest in Italy. At the beginning of the 19th century, Italy was three separate states, but over the course of 71 years, they unified to become today's country of Italy, housing the capital of the Catholic Church. While Naples was the most likely candidate to become the capital, Vesuvius eruptions and cholera led the leadership to choose Rome, leaving Naples in the dust. Pizza was then relegated as the pauper's food, served on the streets of the cholera-infected living cemetery. With no real medical knowledge of cholera, citizens had no understanding of how to prevent it. They stopped trusting doctors and the government and relied on logic. Thinking it might be a sanitary issue, they resulted in relying on wine and deep-frying their pizza. To this day, fried pizza remains a staple of Naples street vendors. The idea that pizza was peasant food was never more clear than when stated so in an 1876 book titled Il Vagio per Italia di Giannettino, written by an aristocrat from Florence. The story was about the unification of Italy through a boy's eyes. He writes, Do you know what pizza is? It is a focaccia made from leavened bread, which is toasted or fried. On top of it, they put a sauce with a little bit of everything. When its colors are combined, the black of the toasted bread, the sickly white of the garlic, the green-yellow of the oil, and bits of red from the tomato, it makes pizza look like a patchwork of greasy filth that harmonizes perfectly with the appearance of the person selling it. The aristocrat from Florence, who penned such a scathing book, would become famous a few years later. You may not know the name Carlo Collati, but you do know the book that made him famous, the one and only story of Pinocchio. Politically, times in Italy were in turmoil. Unification started in 1871. The king was almost assassinated in 1878 and Italy's relationship with neighboring countries was strained. The first First Lady of Italy took it upon herself to network, promote Italy, and build a loyal following of the monarchy. In 1899, she decided to make a dangerous trip to Naples, where cholera had killed over 40,000 people, and the city was rebelling against doctors and the government. Naples was honored to be visited by the queen, and gave her the most beautiful reception. To sow she was a queen of the people, she tried to don local folk clothing and eat the local fare. In Naples, there would be pizza. Raffaele Esposito, the chef at Pizzeria Brandi, was tapped to make a pizza for the queen. He decided the pizza needed to reflect the colors of the Italian flag, basil for green, mozzarella for white, and tomato for red and he would name the pizza after Her Majesty, the Margarita Pizza, for Queen Margarita. Her love of the dish renewed the world's interest in pizza and began the turn for Naples. But the toll of cholera forced many to flee to places like the United Kingdom, Canada, and the United States. A few of those who fled were Filippo Meloni, Gennaro Lombardi, Maria Puzo, Anna and Francesco Panino, 
Gabriel and Teresi Caponi, and Assunta Cantisano. These six Neapolitans would help shape the 20th century. Filippo Meloni was a dough-maker in Naples before departing for the U.S. Unmarried and without children, Filippo settled in the Little Italy part of Manhattan, where he turned to what he did best, making dough. In 1903, he opened the first pizzeria in America, and then opened three more. But a bit overwhelmed, he sold the first 192 Grand Street location to another Naples immigrant, Gennaro Lombardi. It isn't known if Gennaro Lombardi is related to the 1790 cookbook Chef Lombardi, but he changed the name of the restaurant to Lombardi's and is often credited as the father of pizza in the U.S. Sadly, without any kin, Filippo Maloney was buried in an unmarked grave in Queens, leaving Gennaro Lombardi to carry the torch. Anna and Francesco Pinino left Naples in 1899, settling in New York City. Drawn to theater and music, Francesco both composed music and owned a theater. With a high population of Italian immigrants, Francesco imported Italian films, and they lived above his theater in an apartment with their daughter, Italia. When Italia was 22, she fell in love with and married her best friend, Carmine. Like her father, Carmine was a music composer, a flautist, and had studied at Juilliard. He would get a job with the Detroit Symphony, moving Italia there, where they had three kids, August, Francis, and Talia. Their son Francis contracted polio as a child and was bedridden for long periods of time, during which he created puppet shows and enacted full movies like Streetcar of Desire. It is here that he developed a love of theater, that one day led him to UCLA Film School. In a similar story, Maria and Antonio Puzo left Naples just after the turn of the century. With their two children, they settled in the Hell's Kitchen area of New York City and had ten more children living largely in public housing project. Antonio spent his days as a railroad track worker, but he was plagued with mental illness Sadly, his condition devolved into schizophrenia, and he was institutionalized when their son Mario was only 12 years old. Antonio and Maria were both illiterate, but that didn't stop Mario from excelling in school. He was told by two of his teachers that his compositions were good enough to be published. Mario got a job in the railroad industry, as had his father. Working as a switch attendant, he used the time to read everything in the 11th Street Public Library on drama. Destined for college, World War II had different plans for boys his age. Mario joined the Air Force and was sent to Germany, where he was assigned to the government of captured towns in France. He spent all his time in France and Germany, never making it to his parents' homeland of Italy. Italy was an anomaly for the U.S. in World War II. With so many Italian-Americans in the U.S. military, and with a country full of Catholics, Italy was a tough target, especially Rome. Rome was over 2,500 years old, which caused many Americans to vehemently oppose the bombing. The British had a similar quandary, but one man was quite vocal in his support, H.G. Wells. 
since Italy took part in the German blitz bombing of Europe. H.G. Wells said, Give them hell. Naples had its own role in World War II. Even though the Allies felt it necessary to bomb the munitions plant in nearby Paluzzi, they did try to avoid civilian targets in Naples. While it seemed like the Neapolitan citizens would have been furious with the Allies and the bombings, it wasn't until the Germans got close that their true colors were exposed. Prior to the German occupation, on September 23, 1943, announcements were made that young men were to step forward as laborers and those living within 30 meters of the coastline were to evacuate. No Neapolitan was going to be told what to do or how to live that day. So with zero planning, the citizenry grabbed their knives, pitchforks, shovels, guns, and broom handles in defiance. And then using the myriad of underground passageways, they continually surprise attacked the Germans for four days before turning back their almighty and powerful armored tank division, allowing the Allies to liberate the city on October 1st, 1943. This event has been named the Four Days of Naples and is celebrated every year. With the Germans expelled, the Allied forces set up an airbase at Palm Cape Field to help command and control southern Europe. Unfortunately, 11 months later, in one fell swoop, 88 aircraft were destroyed, the base was permanently disabled, and nearby villages were sacked. But not by the Germans. In 1944, Mount Vesuvius erupted again, with no regard to the war or Naples. It is said that America's exploits in Italy are the reason pizza became popular after World War II. But the truth is, only 15% of American soldiers were ever in Italy, and only a fraction of those experienced pizza. The real story about pizza in America is the changing face of America itself after the war. Italian Americans were quickly becoming some of America's most famous people. Joe DiMaggio and Yogi Berra, fresh from World War II, were dominating baseball. Frank Sinatra and Enrique Caruso were selling millions of albums. Enrique Caruso's most famous song, O Solo Mio, had actually been written by a poet from Naples and is sung in the Napoleon dialect. A song that brought pizza to the forefront of America's consciousness was number two on the Billboard charts by Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Perhaps you know it from the lyrics. In Napoli, where love is king, when boy meets girl, here's what they say. When the moon hits your eye, like a big pizza pie, that's amore. And pizza was featured in America's most popular shows. Jackie Gleason's character Ralph Cramden was forced to sit and watch his friend Ed Norton eat pizza while his wife made him eat a salad on The Honeymooners. And Lucy found herself working in a pizza restaurant to help their Italian friend in an episode of I Love Lucy. In 1954, up-and-coming actress Sophia Loren starred as a Naples pizza vendor, a job she actually had, in a movie for up-and-coming movie producer Dino De Laurentiis. But America's fascination with Italian culture wouldn't peak until 1969. 
Remember Mario, who wanted to go to college for literature, but was enlisted in the Air Force and sent to Germany? Well, upon his return from World War II, he did graduate from City College of New York and wrote a couple of books. Then in 1969, he published a book that sat on the New York Times bestseller list for 67 weeks. That book was about the life of organized crime in America. It was called The Godfather, and its author, Mario Puzo. But that brings us back to the beginning of our story, and the list of the six people from Naples who changed the 20th century. Gabrielle and Teresi Caponi left Naples at the turn of the century for America. After a couple of short moves, they settled in Chicago, where they raised nine children, one of them named after Queen Margarita's granddaughter, Mafalda. At the age of 29, Mafalda opened a deli on Chicago's south side, called Fox's Beverly Pub. It became known for killer Italian sandwiches and Neapolitan lasagna. The Caponis weren't exactly famous for their deli. However, they were heavily involved in the food and beverage business. When Prohibition was enacted, they got involved in making, selling, and distributing black market alcohol. Their middle child, Albert, became part of Chicago's organized crime scene, and like Michael Corleone in The Godfather, he became notorious, and most people know him not as Albert Capone, but as mobster Al Capone. There is a story from the Capone family lore about Mafalda in her Fox's Beverly pub. It is said that one day a customer came in and requested the recipe for her tomato sauce in the lasagna, and Mafalda gave it to them. The Capones believe that this customer took the recipe and turned it into the famous ragu sauce you see in stores. But that's only true in Capone family history. Because Assunta Cantizano is our fifth influential person to leave Naples at the turn of the century. She and her husband settled in Rochester, New York. They had been farmers in Naples and immediately started growing tomatoes in Rochester. To help make ends meet, they started making tomato sauce and selling it from their front porch, while their son peddled it to local restaurants. When their sales outgrew their kitchen, they opened their first factory and started selling their Italian ragu tomato sauce in jars. Their sales went from 150,000 in 1953 to 22 million in 1969 when they sold to Cheeseboro Pond, who grew the Ragu brand to $200 million annually. Ragu commercials tapped into the pro Italian sentiment by using the tagline, That's Italian. Remember Italia and Carmine and their son Francis, who contracted polio? After UCLA Film School, Francis would go on to make many movies, and the one to make him famous was a World War II biopic about General George S. Patton, titled Patton. Yes, Francis's parents are Italia and Carmine Coppola, and they named their son Francis after their hometown of Detroit. You know him as Francis Ford Coppola, and his movie Patton made him a sought-after director. Paramount had him on their radar. They had just purchased the movie rights 
to Mario Puzo's Godfather, and were looking for an Italian-American to direct it. Francis Ford Coppola accepted the job, and not only won Academy Awards for it, but also made a movie many considered the greatest movie of all time. In true family style, Francis's father helped write the score and songs, and mother played an important non-speaking role in the film. Known for her cooking, Francis's mother Italia Coppola would publish a cookbook called Mama Coppola's Pasta Book, and Francis would create an entire line of foods based on his mamarelle's cooking. The Godfather also inspired an Omaha entrepreneur to open a pizza restaurant of the same name. That restaurant would later be purchased by Willie Thiessen and turned into one of America's biggest chains, Godfather's. But Omaha's Godfather's wasn't the first national pizza chain. That title belongs to Pizzeria Uno of Al Capone's Chicago. Shakey's, Pizza Hut, Little Caesars, and Domino's also began to populate the suburbs of America. Today, Italian food is ubiquitous with American food. Pizza restaurants, frozen pizza, and fancy restaurant specials can be found in every city in America. The food of peasants has become the food of kings. Even though Naples was hit with seven different cholera epidemics in the 20th century, pizza wouldn't be stopped until the COVID epidemic of 2020. On March 13, 2020, the sale of pizza was banned in Naples and the public was mandated to stay home. And for 29 days, no pizza would be had until a miracle happened and the government of Naples passed a law allowing pizza home delivery for the first time. Over 20,000 pizzas were delivered in one day. Before we finish, let me tell you the stories that hit the cutting room floor. Believe it or not, but tomatoes were the center subject of a Supreme Court case in 1893. John Nix had founded a produce company in New York and was one of the first to ship produce from Bermuda to New York City. An 1883 Tariff Act passed by President Chester A. Arthur mandated a tax on vegetables, but not fruit. Having been taxed for tomatoes, John Nix sued the collectors for the Port of New York to recover back taxes, and the case made it all the way to the Supreme Court. After presenting all their scientific data, the court actually ruled on whether a tomato was a fruit or a vegetable. Because the tomato fit both the definition of a fruit and the definition of a vegetable, the court had to look to colloquial use. And since tomatoes were used more like vegetables, the law decided tomatoes are a vegetable. Today, tomato is the state fruit of Tennessee and the state vegetable of New Jersey. Mario Puzo may have become famous for writing The Godfather, but most people don't know that he wrote the screenplays for the first two Superman movies, starring Christopher Reeve as well. Sophia Loren lived in Naples during World War II, and during the bombing of the Paluzzi Armory, she was hit with shrapnel which injured her chin. 
The Godfather's Pizza Chain was run by 2016 presidential candidate Herman Cain. Sadly, in 2020, Herman Cain died due to the coronavirus. In 1906, Mount Vesuvius erupted over Naples, causing the 1908 Olympics to be moved from Rome to London. During those Olympics, the marathon was lengthened to make it start at Windsor Castle and end in front of the Queen. That arbitrary new number, 26.2 miles, became the standard for marathons. In 1844, Alexander Dumas, our Three Musketeers author, published a rewrite of E.T.A. Hoffman's The Nutcracker and the Mouse King. It is the rewrite Tchaikovsky used to create the ballet The Nutcracker. Before the Allies invaded Italy during World War II, they visited, negotiated, and made a deal with the godfather-like mobster Lucky Luciano, who was currently in prison. If Lucky would make sure the New York dock workers wouldn't strike over their involvement in Italy, Luciano would be exported to Naples after the war. And thus, Italy is where he lived out his life. Finally, Francis Ford Coppola's sister, Talia Shire, played Sylvester Stallone's wife in the Rocky movies. And his grandson, Nicolas Cage, seems to be in every movie. Francis would end up owning wineries, resorts, and restaurants around the world. One of those in southern Italy is named after Queen Margarita. It's the Palazzo Margarita. And his restaurant in Hollywood serves seven different Neapolitan pizzas, including pizza marinara. And so is the story of the Devil's Fruit. In tracing the path of the 20th century, we often run into the same familiar faces. Today, we ran into Alexander Dumas, the Three Musketeers, Chicago, New York City, Juilliard, UCLA Film School, H.G. Wells, World War II, Yogi Berra, the Supreme Court, and the Nutcracker. If you're interested in how these things are tied to other people, places, and ideas of the 20th century, Subscribe and dig deeper into our other stories. You've been listening to the 23rd episode of Tracing the Path with Dan Armour.